Production support comes from Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922 with residential and business internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net. Welcome to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Zaltzberg, editor of the Herald Times, along with State Impact Indiana's Ellie Moxley. And today we're going to talk about seclusion rooms in Indiana schools. Advocates for special needs students say schools need formal policies on how and when to use seclusion and restraint. Today we're going to talk about that and uh, about what policies schools currently have, when teachers should intervene, and whether districts need guidance from the state. So joining us in the studio are ARC of Indiana Associate Director Kim Dodson, Monroe County Community School Corporation's Community-Based Special Education Coordinator, Kathy Bruner, and Jeffrey Anderson, who is an associate professor at IU School of Education teaching special education. If you have questions or comments, please join us by calling 855-0811 in Bloomington or 877-285-9348 from outside of the Bloomington calling area. You can also join a live chat at wfiu.org slash noon edition and you can follow us on twitter at noon edition so thanks for being here everybody thanks for having thanks. us thank you. Thank, you. Here. Ellie, nice thank you ellie nice to see you uh so we're gonna we're gonna talk about this issue i know that it's a, an issue in the state legislature too but i want to ask um uh kathy if you could sort of frame this discussion for us seclusion rooms are uh why is it a controversial issue it's a controversial issue because we want to make sure that any use of any kind of seclusion or restraint for any student um, adheres by some kind of rules and regulations that all people will abide by. Um, it's imperative that we do everything possible to prevent the need for such seclusion and restraint. So emphasis on training, emphasis on support in the classrooms, emphasis on um, communal understanding of what needs to be in place. Uh-huh. And the MCCSC, I think you told us right before the show, has a policy about this at this point. That's right, right. Bob. We, um, our school board passed a policy at the January school board meeting. It's still under revision. It's still having some policy, cha- uh, some corrections to that. In addition to the policy, there'll be guidelines that will be fi- finalized um, to go along with that and information in the handbooks for each school. Okay. Now, in the the legislature this year, Ellie, you may be uh, uh, up to date on this. There's a, a bill that's going through the legislature about this. I am. the The latest recommendations um, involve having, you know, looking at um, adopting a commission on seclusion and restraint here in Indiana, and having you know the state kind of hold some meetings and get some input on what kind of policies can best serve schools. The the original proposal from uh, Senator Randy Head uh, just looked at making sure that all schools had a policy and. I know that I know Kim. I know you were at the state house testifying um, at the hearing. Can you kind of uh, walk us through kind of what some of what what some of that testimony looked like, and kind of what people who care about this issue, what what perspective are they bringing to the table? Well, I think we really started um, the whole process this past summer, where we went through the um, process with the um, Commission on Autism to really start addressing the issue regarding seclusion and restraint use in schools. And what we have in the state of Indiana is no laws. We only have a recommendation from the Department of Education that each school corporation should have a law. We don't have any requirement that they do have a law. So what we see is, like Monroe County, they have a great policy and they're doing the right thing. We also have some schools who may have a policy, but it doesn't have anything, everything in the policy that it really needs. And then we still have a lot of school corporations that have no policies at all. So that's kind of where we started, um, re- wanting to make sure that every school corporation is required to have a policy. And that was kind of the, the fundamental starting point for the discussion to begin with. Um, and then as it worked through the process, uh, we realized there was a lot of different definitions, a lot of different thoughts about what does physical restraint mean? What does chemical restraint mean? What does a seclusion room mean? And so Senator Head worked really hard with a task force made up of advocates um, and, and professionals to make sure that there was a uniform definition used throughout the state that was in 345 as it was introduced um, to, again, make sure that we were all talking about the same things as we moved forward. And then once that bill, the legislative um, draft started um, 
in the session, it um, received its first hearing with the Senate Education Committee. Um, and I think what we saw there was, you know, Senator Head had done a masterful job of bringing a lot of people to the table, of making sure that he heard their, their concerns, um, that he, you know, was able to compromise with them where we needed to. Um, he reached out to the State Teachers Association, the principals, the school boards, the superintendents, to hear what their concerns were and to, to, to try to address as many of them as we can. And so what we saw at that, at that first Senate hearing was people coming to the table to, you know, give support for the issue um, because they do want to make sure that seclusion and restraints are used properly in schools. Um, But they also wanted to raise some concerns with the way that the bill was drafted because many felt that it was a little bit too prescriptive. And so I think the Senate Education Committee learned um, from some of those issues that was raised, and that's where we all are today with the commission being set up to, again, try to, you know, go back a couple steps Uh, review some best practices that are happening in other states and make sure that whatever gets forwarded um, as a statewide policy is the best that it can possibly be. So it sounds like schools are all at, across the state, are all at very different points in this. And it it sounds like MCCSC is maybe a little farther along in terms of looking at different policies. Kathy, can you kind of explain to us, what does a seclusion room look like in your district? Well, I, I would qualify that seclusion that when we define seclusion, it's not necessarily referring to a room. Um, So seclusion would refer to retaining a student against their will, whether it's in a room or anywhere in the building. Um, We do have a couple of rooms that we would qualify as rooms for seclusion um, that have to abide by the standards that were um, recommended, which would mean... Uh, a, a door that closes but doesn't lock, a door that has a window for viewing, that has ventilation, that type of thing. And right now we only have three rooms in our district that, that meet that qualification. So as a principal, we're not really using seclusion rooms per se. So it was more important to us to to clarify what does it mean when we're um, secluding anybody. And how would that technique be used in, with any adult, with any student across the district? Now, Jeffrey, you uh, um, teach uh, at IU, and you're, you're especially special education right. teachers. So uh, are seclusion rooms exclusively used for special education, or, or is it predominantly used for kids who might have disabilities of some sort? Well, what, what we see in the literature is that it is. It tends to be overused with kids with disabilities, and particularly uh, young people who have emotional and behavior disorders or challenges. Um, so when we, when I'm looking, working with teacher, future teachers, one of the things we talk about is how to best avoid the use of seclusion. And I heard Kathy say that several times already in the conversation about the importance of prevention. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, so, are what are some ways that you can help? try to avoid the use of seclusion rooms? Are there certain techniques to use with kids that, that uh, work better than others? We, in um, the, the uh, Teaching All Learners program, which is affectionately known as TALL in the IU School of Education, we start with the premise that knowing your students, really knowing your students, is the foundation of all classroom management. And we use classroom management the phrase classroom management very broadly to include curriculum and instruction as well as uh, classroom expectations as well as what happens when if and when misbehavior occurs mm-hmm. okay um, we're looking for your thoughts on seclusion rooms in schools if you want to join us on the program you can call us at 855-0811 or 877-285-9348 you can also join our live chat at wfiu.org slash noon edition I'm kind of curious as to to why this uh, issue has sort of risen to the the prominence that it has now. I know um, Ellie's colleagues at, at State Impact Ohio did a big series of stories last year with the Columbus Dispatch, uh, the Capital Cities newspaper, about misuse of seclusion rooms in Ohio. Is is that part of the reason? Are we seeing more and more misuse of these rooms? So we have to to um, figure out a way to regulate them. I would say yes, we are. Um, I've been with the Ark of Indiana for 15 years, and early on, I would receive an occasional phone call, maybe not even six a year, uh, which I still think is too many. 
um, regarding the use of seclusion and restraints um, inappropriately in schools. And what we've seen over the last several years is definitely an increase in that. And so I think that's why you've had the federal government trying to take action on this issue. Um, unfortunately, they have not been successful in getting anything passed. And quite honestly, it was um, the Ark of Indiana. We have a, a very broad education committee of many different advocates and professionals in the field of education. And um, I think it was two years ago, there was a Supreme Court case where there was a teacher on the south side of Indianapolis that had a student with autism who um, she didn't care too much for some of his behaviors. And so she decided one day to duct tape him to a chair, tilt him back on his back. Um, and it led to a lot of emotional issues for this child, of course. And it went all the way up to the Supreme Court, and they decided that no law was broken. Um, and so the teacher, nothing happened to her. And so that was kind of the final straw for our education committee. That was when we decided we wanted to be a little bit more um, aggressive and trying to get something passed. And that's when we started reaching out to the legislature and really started to get the attention of a, of a broad range of, of legislators who really wanted to take action on this issue. Yeah, I mean, you would think that you wouldn't need a regulation to say don't duct tape a student to a chair and lean him over on on a, on her back or his back. But I guess I, I used to I agree more. <laughs> I used to collect um, newspaper articles that uh, focused on the misuse of um, disciplinary actions by teachers, and it, it's pretty amazing. I mean, duct taping, locking kids in closets, taping somebody up in a box, taping somebody to the chair, and. So we really focus in teacher education on understanding positive discipline. Uh And I I would totally agree that one of the advantages of having a policy that everybody adheres to is that the current policy could include the proactive strategies of what to do in place of last resort seclusion or restraint. And um, I certainly know that that's the emphasis we have in Monroe County Schools is, like you were saying, um, that it's uh, the best The best prevention is to really know your student and to have a plan um, and to think out some of those, some of the steps that would lead to a, a resolution of the heightened anxiety or the increased possibility of some kind of a crisis with a student. Mm -hmm. And that's part of our training. You know, obviously, a student being duct taped to a chair is an extreme case. And I know that a lot of this conversation surrounding seclusion and restraint in schools has to do with um, appropriate versus inappropriate uses. And also in terms of, Kathy, what you're talking about with a plan, I know that one one thing for students with special needs, students with special needs have something that we call an IEP or an individualized education plan. And I know that in some districts that do have policies, um, these Seclusion and restraint can be used as part of a child's IEP. What does an appropriate use of seclusion restraint or how can that be built in to be used in a way that, you know, isn't punishing a student like like it sounds like was in this case in Indianapolis where a child was duct taped to a chair versus using it in the way it is intended as 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 part of other strategies and other behaviors? Well, for example, you could have it built in that it would be a, a place for calming um, it could be um, student-directed. A student might um, request a place to go calm. Um, we don't have places that are separate rooms necessarily in every building. As I said, we only have a couple of what we'd call seclusion rooms that meet that qualification. But um, but proactive strategies of calming or having a place that's got fewer distractions um, that allow the student to regain composure. Um, certainly, if if such a, a seclusion were used, it would have to um, only be used as a last resort, um, would have to be used only until the student was calm and could was able to um, reengage back into activities. Um, staff would have to have constant supervision over the student, asking questions. At, at the three doorways of these rooms, we have a log where staff have to immediately record why the student went in, what they were doing, even if it was self-directed, um, and to be able to keep data that could then be shared with families and with um, the educational team. So there's quite a bit of accountability. So if you go that far, if it goes that far, there's accountability and responsibility of the follow-up. Yes. And I would also suggest that that be part of the a contingency plan within that educational, um, individualized educational program or the IEP, that that team talks about 
under what conditions um, these more um, inter- intrusive interventions are going to be used and what's going to happen as a result and ensure it, you know, just to follow up on Kathy said about data, to ensure that the use of seclusion, if it is going to be used, is working um, or helping the student work in a positive direction. To, you know, you don't want to see the use of seclusion increasing over time. You want to see it decreasing, and you want students to be uh, able to uh, stay engaged in, in the um, classroom setting without needing more and more time to calm down, but instead needing less and less time and learning how to manage those emotions. This, uh, it sounds like the whole the, the premise is like a timeout, like a parent would give a child a timeout. That's the same kind of thing we're talking about. I was actually going to ask if you guys could kind of clarify that difference because I know, Kim, I know we were in the same Senate Education uh, Committee hearing and Senator Luke Kenley uh, kind of compared the process it to, you know, giving his grandkids a timeout. And I know that in especially circles of people who advocate for students with special needs, that the the terms are not synonymous. Can you kind of walk us through that distinction? Well, actually, I think it's probably more appropriate for for Kathy to do that, um, because I think that for those of us who kind of are, you know, not experts in the educational field, um, I think it is easy to kind of to draw that, you know, to draw that there is a comparison between um, the timeout rooms and seclusion. I think there's a difference between, you know, taking a timeout and just kind of going off to the side of a room or going out in the hallway for a second than actually going to a separate room where you really are secluded from everything around you because you really do need that calmness. Um, you know, a lot of kids who do just need a timeout, the, the teachers will send them off to the side just to kind of take a break, take a break from whatever's in front of them um, as part of the academic day, uh, whereas the seclusion really is used more of as a behavior, uh, really more as, okay, you really just need to be separated from your surroundings so your whole body can just decompress. I, I would agree. I think that it's... Um you know, it's a when we talk about student directed or student led, that's really very different than adults determining that it's time for you to take a break. Um, so when the adult reaches that level um, of need for that student, that that's in that student's best interest, and for everybody to keep everybody safe. And again, I would keep repeating that this is used only as a last resort. Um, that um, that then it is directed and the staff are directed to take the student, if it were part of a plan, um, to a place to calm. And like I said, not every, not every school has a seclusion room, so it might be in the back of the room, but then the student is prevented from striking out or hurting anybody else during that period of time. And then the strategies that teachers know are implemented, all kind of verbal de-escalation strategies and physical intervention strategies, if necessary. This is, I think for a lot of, a lot of people, this might be a fairly new uh, issue to think about. Uh, if you're not involved in it on a regular basis, I can tell you honestly that I wasn't really aware that seclusion rooms were being used in school. And I guess I'd ask our listeners, you know, do, do you know if your schools use seclusion rooms to separate students who, who need to be separated for a while? If you uh, know or if you want to talk about this, please phone us at 855-0811 or 877-285-9348. And you can also join a live chat at wfiu.org slash noon edition. Um, I, I, I wonder about uh, you know, when, when a, a child is in a seclusion room and then comes out, I mean, what is the sort of the reentry process for that that child to come back into um, the classroom with the re- rest of the kids? I would, I think that might be a little tricky. Well, again, this is um, it's just only until the student has regained composure. So sometimes we're talking seconds, sometimes we're talking a few minutes. This is not something that's supposed to last very long. Um, The whole goal of calming is then to get back engaged in the activity that the student was last um, involved in prior to whatever triggered the need for the break. Um, So because then what can happen is the break itself can be the reinforcer, um, meaning that the student might seek out opportunities for more and more breaks. I think the idea is to debrief. Um, we call it um, 
some coping strategies, postvention strategies of debriefing with the student prior to them going back. Are you ready? Are you, you know, you're going to go back in to the art class. Uh, you know, you feel like you've got your back in control. So again, we're talking about a, uh, an activity that allows the student to come back and be immediately reengaged as quickly as possible. So the 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 checking in would be part of that strategy of coming out of the coming out of that room. And who does the checking in? Is that the classroom teacher? It would be well in each of the buildings we have a crisis intervention team. Um, typically, again, it would be the the one that knows the student the best. So you might have a student that was in art, but the homeroom teacher knows them best. The team would be called, um, and then. Whoever is best at working with that student and de-escalating whatever that challenging behavior is would be on, and that person would remain with that student with the others there as backup if needed um, for whatever kinds of support that, that, that student would need. So, yeah, whoever knows them best. Kathy, I, I'm curious. You're talking about this this team that works with students. Um, you know that that I assume that is part of the training that you do with with teachers. Is this just for you know teachers who work with students with special needs and are part of this you know this this intervention team, or is this for are all teachers kind of ch- trained on how to deal with you know some of these challenging behaviors? Right now, um, we have um, each building principal selects people to participate on their crisis intervention team. So it often does involve special education teachers, but in addition to that, people that might be able to be freed in the event of a need, and because the need is not just for special education students. Um, These are for all kids in all buildings. So so we do look to see, often the principals are trained, um, vice principals if they're available, social workers, um, sometimes the media specialist, um, the physical education teachers, some buildings, you know, they just will make a determination of which five to ten people in their building um, can be trained to, to represent um, CPI methods and technologies in helping to de-escalate behavior. Are there, are there certain um, age groups where seclusion rooms are, are more necessary than others, like at elementary schools versus middle schools versus high schools? Right now, they're only at our secondary. Okay. And that's probably more because the kids are larger and um, and – you know, I don't know. Okay. Bigger than me. All right. I mean, you really want to avoid situations at the secondary level where you have to use restraints. So the idea of um, of uh, implementing or using seclusion rooms would, um, would make sense because as kids get bigger, you don't want to have to physically restrain. I mean, you don't ever want to have to physically restrain. Mm-hmm. Okay, we're uh, talking about seclusion rooms and whether Indiana should uh, regulate schools' use of seclusion and restraint restraint methods with students. Uh, If you want to join us on the program, please call us at 855-0811 or 877-285-9348. The web address is wfiu.org slash noon edition. We're going to take a break. We'll be right back comes from Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana. This is Noon Edition on WFIU. Production support comes from Smithville. Information at smithville.net. You can take WFIU with you by downloading our podcasts directly to your PC, Mac, or MP3 player. Programs such as Noon Edition, Ask the Mayor, and Harmonia, and short features like Kinsey Confidential, the Ether Game Musical Mini Quiz, and Play and Opera Reviews are all available on demand. Pick them up at WFIU.org. And have you heard WFIU's news features? The WFIU news team brings you expanded and in-depth reports on topics affecting South Central Indiana. Catch the Friday feature just after 8.30 during Morning Edition, just before Noon Edition, and at 5.45 during All Things Considered. They're also archived on our website, WFIU.org.
Welcome back to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Salzberg, editor of the Herald Times, along with my co-host today, Ellie Moxley from State Impact Indiana. Uh, We're talking about uh, when should schools use seclusion rooms and what should the state policy be. If you have uh, questions or comments on that, uh, please phone us at 855-0811 or 877-285-9348. You can also join a live chat at WFIU.org slash Noon Edition. You will be able to talk with uh, ARC of Indiana Associate Director Kim Dodson, IU School of Education Associate Professor Jeffrey Anderson, or MCCSC Community-Based uh, Special Education Coordinator Kathy Bruner. Um, I wanted to ask you, Jeffrey, um, what kind – I mean, if, if you had, you know, magic wand, what kind of policy would you do you think should be put in place for the state? Well, what's interesting to me as I listened – to the earlier parts of this conversation is uh, in preparing teachers to go out and uh, work in the field, we've always talked about ensure that you have a policy in place for discipline and how you're going to um, conduct discipline. So even, you know, and so now we have this um, state law being passed where everybody's going to have to have policies, and we've been kind of encouraging our teacher candidates all, all along to make sure that wherever you go work, there's a policy, and if there's not, you help, you work with your principal, create a crisis intervention team, planning team, and you create a policy. So I guess, you know, if, if I had a magic wand, I would I, – all of our teacher candidates would understand knowing your students, engaging curriculum and instruction. So the idea is that your classroom is such a stimulating environment that you don't want to be away from it. You know, and that's the notion, uh, Elliot asked earlier about timeout. That's the notion of timeout is time away from a reinforcing setting. Uh-huh. So, how, so how, do you, how do you encourage your, your students, um, this may be a little bit off topic, but to create that engaging um, kind of atmosphere? And, and do they, should they have some techniques uh, for, you know, if, if I would assume, and I, I hope I'm not getting on thin ice here, but I would assume that you're going to know, for the most part, which ones of your students might be problematic. Do you have techniques that are are sort of geared toward a few individuals in the class? Oh, yeah, certainly. Uh, we, you know, it goes back to the individual education program that a student has an IEP, has a special education label, that there is a, um, if behavior is an issue, regardless of which label we're talking about, that there is a behavior intervention plan in place, that behavior, that, that BIP, behavior intervention plan, is based on data from a functional behavior assessment, that it builds on positive um, behavior. So the notion is that you want to extinguish inappropriate types of behavior and replace them with positive behaviors. And there are techniques for doing that through both positive reinforcement, but also, you know, ecological techniques where you get to know the family, you get to know the students outside of school environments and challenges and see how you can do things in school and out of school that reinforce each other. Can you, can you, can you give us sort of a hypothetical of a, a case, you know, if uh, a student is, is acting up and you think it's really heading the wrong way? I mean, what could you do? Well, are you talking about a specific instance yeah. in a classroom Yeah, like setting? a hypothetical specific instance that you might tell, talk to your, your students about. Well, well, okay, so I would want to understand what the – we've already talked about this, what the students' history, uh-huh. histories are, what has already been done. Um, you know, is there a behavior intervention plan in place? If not, Why? You know, if so, what does that behavior intervention plan say that we need to do as a student is starting to to escalate? And I would want to make sure that that plan was very clear. You know, if I, uh, uh, Kathy said um, very um, earlier that if I'm going to remove the student and it's going to be more than just a brief time out, a time away from from the classroom or reinforcing behavior or reinforcement, that. Um, I have a very clear plan that dictates why that student is being removed from the classroom, what's going to happen while he or she is being removed, who's going to be the first, you know, who's going to be interacting with the student while this is occurring, that that person is trained, that data are being collected, that the family and the IEP team understands that this is what occurs when um, misbehavior is escalating. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, it does. 
Well, for example, I think um, when we're talking again about the teacher knowing the student, um, for example, if Johnny comes in and Johnny's pacing and Johnny's wringing his hands and he is asked to, everybody's asked uh, as a class to sit down and, and open the red book to page 10 and Johnny doesn't, like there are already several signals that a teacher would be watching for um, if Johnny normally has to pace before able before sitting down and tending to a task, that would be in the behavior plan. But if you're noticing that this seems out of place for Johnny, then the, then those are the signals that we're asking teachers to pay attention to, um, and that what can you do right away that might prevent an escalating behavior. So being supportive, asking John if he wants to come out in the hall, finding out what happened that morning, and it could be a circumstance and factors that are completely outside of anything in the school day. Could have been a bad night, could have been bullying, um, waiting for the bus, who, you know, so who knows what it could be, but it gives us an opportunity to intervene throughout that. And so if it escalates to refusal or saying no, and Johnny says he's not going to go outside with you and he's not going to sit down, then again, what can a teacher do? that can be directive and supportive and set limits. So there are some skill sets. It's like having a little toolbox of skill sets that teachers could be um, be given right on the onset. And I love it that you're already talking about it at IU. I love it. Um, so that teachers come into a classroom situation knowing and being prepared to look for signs and opportunities to intervene and de-escalate a behavior. Could, could it be something uh, – I'm, I'm asking a lot of simple questions because that's the way that, – that's who I am, simple guy. Um, <laughs> I, I mean, could it be so, something as simple as, you know, you know, this, you know this, this kid is like a big, I don't know, Indiana basketball fan and the team lost last night. And that may be agitating the kid Absolutely. today. So. Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. And and I would say even if it's somebody that you don't know, I think one of the examples we give in the CPI training is um, using a Dr. Pepper and we give it a little shake when we talk about all the possible factors that could be impacting Johnny or Sam or Betty. and that a lot of those factors might not we might not have any control over that but at least allowing a child the opportunity to talk about the loss oh man i saw that game too are you yeah. kidding me do you believe that happened like in the last 2 minutes um yeah. so being able to diffuse some of that and even allowing if you haven't been able to inter, you know to stop the escalating behavior to the point when they're shouting and venting venting is a really good strategy too it's hands off you don't have to um, to seclude anybody. Um, you might want to remove the audience, but allowing kids to vent is another really, really good strategy. So again, the emphasis here is safety for everybody. Any kind of seclusion or restraint definitely puts everybody at risk. And so we need to really do everything possible. And I know our new superintendent, safety is the big, big, big issue for us. It's a theme song. So we are really looking for ways to to find um, the toolkit, what's in the toolkit to de-escalate. All right. We're looking for your thoughts about uh, seclusion rooms in schools and whether your schools have written policies, and anything else you want to tell us based on our conversation today. And Jeff wants to join the conversation. We have a phone call from Jeff. Go ahead. Um, I just uh, I advocated for children with disabilities for oh, about 10 years, um, ending about five years ago. And I uh, continue to hear from some parents and children who have difficulties in the school system. So one problem is uh, the lack of a space uh, perhaps near the classroom where a child can go. Uh, and this is, by the way, a K through K-12 problem, not just a high school problem. A place where they can go other than the principal's office or being expelled from school. Uh, so that's one question. How do you create those spaces where they don't exist? A second issue is, is sending people home precipitously for bad behavior. Um, it seems like there seems to be a lot of that happening uh, without much discussion. So I, I really strongly approve of what you guys are advocating, but I've seen a lot of uh, slip-ups in the school system. So could you address that issue? All right, Jeff, thanks. Um, Kathy, I guess we'll turn to you first. 
Okay. Um, well, Jeff, I appreciate your call. I think that when we talk about a different kind of space in the building, um, I agree. We do have um, spaces in a lot of our schools that we would call sort of a gross motor room or a calming area that we are, are actually built in as part of the strategies and might actually be in IEPs um, for giving kids some downtime, jumping on a mini trampoline, um, having a crawling into a, um, a cozy chair for a few minutes, that kind of thing. Or um, So we do have some of those spaces. Um, I agree that going to the principal's office, I mean, it's a very punitive um, response. Um, so... Yeah, I wish we had more of those so I can take that back. Um, versus sending home. I mean, I cer- certainly think that when we're looking at the policies we have in place now, everything we're trying to do is to keep everybody safe. If there's a situation where continually we have not figured out a way to keep everybody safe or to de-escalate the behavior, then principals... Um, do have the prerogative to keep everybody in the building safe and the students safe. So the sending home, I I certainly hope that the families that you're working with are not seeing this as a routine response um, because certainly our desire is to keep everybody, you know, in school, actively engaged in academics as much as possible and as quickly as possible. All right, Jeff. Thanks a lot for the call. Anybody else have a Yeah, my worry about um, the use of suspension and expulsion is for students with disabilities with identified labels, there are some protections in place. But there are other kids who haven't been identified for special education who are at greater risk of being um, serially suspended because of their behavior. And, And there may be a reduced incentive on the part of the school district to look at why those behaviors are impacting their um, um, classroom uh, involvement so much. And, you know, so I just want to caution all of us um, to be very careful about the use of um, suspension and expulsion because basically if they're not in school and they should be, what's, you know, what's going on and how are they learning? I think we also need to make sure that seclusion and restraints are not used for disciplinary action. Uh, we don't want it to be used as you did wrong, therefore you're going to go to this room. Um, it's definitely much more around behaviors ra- rather than wrongdoing. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I feel like a large part of this conversation is centered around, um, you know, why we need seclusion and restraint policies in terms of, you know, handling some challenging behaviors in the classroom. But I'm also curious about other students, and I think this was part of your response to caller Jeff, Kathy, about, you know, school safety. How are having good seclusion and restraints policy policies beneficial, not just to, you know, the kids that might need some help when they're exhibiting challenging behaviors, but also to the other students in their class um, as well? Well, um, let me see if I understand your question. So how is how is it as a policy going to going to be favorable to everybody in the building, the other peers, that kind of thing. Um, Yeah. um, I think any strategies we use that separates somebody from potential harm is going to benefit everybody, including the student that could be potentially harmful to others. So I think that when we talk about any kind of a restraint, for example, which we haven't really touched on here, but any kind of a physical restraint um, or hold on a student is, um, again, used only as a last resort. But but one of the main motivations for ever using that is to keep that student safe, maybe from hurting themselves or striking out and hurting a- another student. Um, and so that's in, it's immediately effective. I mean, the most effective way to use either of these strategies, um, either restraint or seclusion, is to be very, very uh, I- immediate like in the moment, and then be done, like immediately in the moment and as quickly as possible re-engage everybody back in because we don't want any one student to um, to be labeled by their peers as that kid, the troublemaker, the one who had to go out for the rest of the day. Um, and, um, and yet we want to keep everybody in the room safe. So um, 
again, using this in conjunction with a strategy for addressing the deeper reason of why the behavior occurred in the first place. And, of course, that would involve um, data collection and support for any kind of the um, functional behavior assessment and looking long-term. Now, again, I'm talking about sort of the the repeater, somebody that you is predictable in terms of behavior, not the kid that was disappointed in the basketball scores last night. You know, right. so there's sort of a, a separation there, a difference. All right. Let me give our phone numbers again. If you want to talk to us about uh, the use of seclusion rooms in schools, please phone us at 855-0811 or 877-285-9348. You can also join a live chat at wfiu.org slash noon edition. Um, I wanted to ask about, you know, when uh, – in those rare instances when seclusion rooms are brought into play, um, where do the parents come in? Do you have to contact them or do you, by uh, policy, contact them as soon as this happens to let them know? Again, there's no statewide requirement for parental notification. Uh, that is one of the things that we feel is very um, important to have in the the uh, required policy um, that hopefully will be enacted this year. Um, again, some schools do a really good job. They put forth in their policy, and even if they don't have a policy, they know that it's the right thing to do, that if – seclusion or restraint is used, uh, that they do notify the parent. However, we know of far too many cases where seclusion and restraint is used, the parent is not notified, um, and therefore they either never learn of the incidents, um, they they learn about it from their child, um, you know, and unfortunately we have a lot of of students who um, aren't able to communicate. Um, and so they figure it out through behaviors that they that they um, that transpires at home, or sometimes you get the other parent, um, the other school staff who saw something happen and then reaches out to the parent. So, um, unfortunately, I don't think that that all schools do a good job of parental notification. Yeah, um, that's Kim Dodson from Ark of Indiana. I, I, Kim, it, again, it just seems like it would be. It would for, forestall all sorts of problems if the school would contact the parent because if the parent finds out from um, from his or her own child or from another teacher that, well, here's what happened to your, your child in school today, that it could create all sorts of ripples of, of trouble. Absolutely. I think it receives, you know, it, it gives the wrong message. I mean, if something, and I'll use my child for example, um, if my daughter would do something at school and, you know, need to be taken to a timeout room, and if the principal would call me to say, you know, hey, something happened today. We felt like we needed to do this. I'm going to react to that very differently than if I get a call from another parent to say, hey, I saw your daughter in the school, not sure what happened. And then I definitely feel like the school is trying to hide something from me. So it definitely does kind of frame the way that that action is is, is taken. Go ahead, um, I and I totally agree, Kim. I think that transparency and um, and communication are absolutely key. And I think that's something that we're trying to get better and better at is making sure that same day um, people are notified, people know exactly what happened. And I think that that holds all of us much more accountable for what for what we're doing. What what are the strategies that we're employing? And if we have a little more transparency, then we have the opportunity to be challenged um, by the choices that we are making in the schools. And I'll just take that a a step farther and suggest um, that all schools engage in very proactive um, uh, ways of involving families in the school. So, you know, the idea is, is not just to be reactive that this has happened and we make sure that there's parent contact, but that we already have such a um, strong relationship, you know, we being the teachers at a school, with those families. Those families feel like the school is a place where they're welcomed, where they um, can come and help out, where they can show up in the classroom, and where they're part of their kids' education. And this becomes really important when we're talking about kids with um, disabilities, but it's it's important for all kids that their families are well connected to the school, and that is also I think inherent in the um, in the uh, special education law, the um, Indian individualized education programming, where parents are involved in creating these plans that if a um, more restrictive kind of intervention or a more intrusive intervention is going to be used that we already have talked about under what conditions it's used, what happens, and then that there is um, pretty immediate contact between the the school and the home. Mm -hmm. 
But another part of that is, you know, we, we always contact parents when something's gone wrong. But what right. about having communication with parents when things are going right? Yeah. Now, the direction legislation in the state house seems to be moving is requiring schools have a policy and also through this commission on seclusion and restraint, you know, providing some state guidance versus maybe just having one state Indiana policy or, you know, just requiring that schools all adopt their own. Do you guys think that's a good kind of middle ground approach or do we need one policy or is it better to leave it, you know, up to local schools with local control? Kathy, go ahead. Well, I, I mean, I think, I, again, I haven't been as involved um, in the policy making, but it seems like these are really best practices. Like, why would you not do everything you possibly could as a school system? So it seems like the ones that are being presented through the state, absolutely, we, we need accountability across the state. And I personally would believe that it, it would be imperative that everybody adhere to the same rules. And I think the way the legislation is written is this commission will put forth minimum requirements so that um, each school corporation then, because what we do have in Indiana is we have a very strong regard for local control. Local school boards really feel like that they know their school corporation the best, they know their community the best, and they know the teachers that work for them. And so we wanted to um, really kind of lean on them and, and hearing their concerns about that and give them some lead way. You know, definitely in, um, de- you know, defining who they think is appropriate school personnel to be trained, uh, definitely to have a say-so as to what type of training they wanted their appropriate school personnel to receive. Uh, we felt like that that was a local decision that was appropriate for them to make. However, I think um, Senator Head and a lot of those that was involved in the Senate Education Committee really felt strongly that we did need to put forth these minimum requirements, which we're glad that that commission is going to put forward, because I think those are the best practices that we've been researching for years um, regarding the use of seclusion and restraints in schools. And so I think it gives us a good foundation to, to build upon. Okay. If you uh, want to talk to us today about seclusion, uh, use of seclusion rooms in schools, you've got about five more minutes to do it. So give us a call at 855-0811 or 877-285-9348. You can also join the live chat at wfiu.org slash noon edition. Uh, Jeffrey, I wanted to ask you about um, teaching um, students who want to teach special education and, and so, what are you seeing particular traits of young people that want to go into that line of teaching well it, yeah it's interesting that um, we often see there are sort of themes to the reasons that um, our students come to to the school of education and, and um, choose special education as a career for example we have uh, we have a lot of students who come in because they have a sibling or a family member with a disability and so they've had a long history of direct experience in um, you know sometimes in fighting the system sometimes in working with the system but a lot of experience in helping a family member uh, navigate the educational system you know as well as the the, the uh, societal system uh-huh. and it, it seems to me and Kim I'll bring you into this conversation uh, you know I'm I'm getting up there in years now. So when I, back when I was in school, um, special education was a much different animal than it is today. And we've been through uh, lots of changes uh, mandated by the state, uh, you know, inclusion, a lot of different things. How far along have we gone? I mean, is, uh, you know, are we, should we get an A in how we're treating our, our kids with disabilities, a B, a C? We've certainly come a long way, Um, definitely since the time where we were in segregated schools, uh, let alone segregated classrooms. Um, But, you know, we do feel the Arc of Indiana feels very strongly about inclusion. And, you know, there's numerous studies out there that show that everybody in the classroom um, makes great educational progress when they're in an inclusion setting. Uh, That includes kids of all abilities. Uh, So we do feel like that's really important. Um, yeah, I think we've come a long way, definitely. I don't know if I would give us an A, um, but I would definitely give us someplace in the B range. Okay. Are there a- areas that you think really do need more work, uh, you or Jeffrey? or? Yeah. I, I would like yeah, to see us put more emphasis on um, school-wide positive behavior supports. 
and uh, put more emphasis on training general education teachers, uh, good classroom management strategies so that we can reduce, you know, we do have the response to intervention um, approach that has uh, been coming in over the last five years or so. But what I'm saying is we want to give more skills to gen ed teachers to reduce unnecessary referrals to special education, as well as to um, promote the um, inclusion that Kim is talking about that has now become the way that we do business as opposed to, you know, in the old days when you had to earn your your way out of special education, where special education was this, this place often somewhere else, another school, another building at another classroom to now special education being a set of supports to keep kids in in general education and help them be successful. And I think it goes back again, sorry, this is Kathy, uh, to looking at the proactive strategies. Like even when we think about the the skill sets that a gen ed teacher would need to be successful. We know so much more about that now. We know that kids are all different learners and that some kids are going to work better with fewer distractions. And so the environment, the air vents, the lighting, there's all kinds of impactors in a classroom environment, um, working in groups or working in pairs, um, whole group instruction versus some pullout or individualized or, you know, Anyway, we know about that now, and so teachers are using that to their advantage to teach all learners. I think um, when we talk about, I'm so excited to be old and to have the history (laughs) of looking back and seeing how far we've come. And um, and I agree, we're it's it's not a perfect system yet. I give us an A minus here, but uh, (laughs) but I think it's because I see that. We're on that track. The, re- the response to intervention, to the, the behavior supports in all of the schools, to looking at even the crisis prevention and intervention strategies. It means that everybody is thinking outside that old box and looking for ways to respond to kids. And, you know, as a community-based coordinator, I know it's kind of a mouthful, giving my title, <laughs> But I am responsible um, for the 17 classrooms across the school district with the, that um, have children with the most intense needs for intervention. And the whole emphasis of those programs is to increase participation in, with their typical peers, students' typical peers in classrooms. And it is exhilarating. I mean, it's so wonderful to see that uh, special education teachers working with gen ed teachers, finding the ways that are going to make that happen. All right. Thank you very much. It's been a, a great program today. I want to thank Kim Dodson, Jeffrey Anderson, and Kathy Bruner, as well as Ellie Moxley. Thanks for being here, Ellie. Thank you. And I uh, want to thank our producers, Gretchen Frazee and Julie Raw, as well as engineer Mike Pashkash. I'm Bob Salzberg. Thanks for listening. Thanks. Thanks. Noon Edition is a production of WFIU and the Herald Times. A podcast of this and other WFIU programs is available at WFIU.org. Production support comes from Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922 with residential and business internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net.